Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Smart Casual, the penultimate episode of this series. I hope you've enjoyed all the episodes so far. If you have, please leave us a short review on whatever podcast platform you're using. Better still, tell a friend to tune in. This week I'm joined by comedian Ria Lina. I've known Ria for many years, so it was a pleasure to catch up with her and find out what she's been up to. As you will hear, it's quite a lot. We talked about her recently signing to the comedy agency UTC, her numerous TV appearances, and the differences between performing to a live audience and a TV audience. Ria also educated me about her autism and how it affects her as a comedian. Towards the end of our chat, we touched on an extremely embarrassing anecdote about sending the wrong text to the wrong person. In this case, it was me who sent a text to Ria, but more of that later. So here it is, episode nine of Smart Casual with me, Jeff Innocent, and my guest, Ria Lina. Hey, hi, welcome to Smart Casual. I have comedian Ria Lina in the studio, who's my guest today. And she is at the moment eating sweets. I am, but they were provided by you, so <laughs> I feel like you wanted me to. Uh, now, Rialina, you've just come from Manchester. I have come from Manchester. And you've come from Manchester to the studio before you got home, which is mm -hmm. a fantastic thing, which is a lovely thing for you to do. I didn't realise that that was what was going to be happening. I thought you'd merely be coming from Covent Garden to here. No. What were you doing in Manchester? Gigging. Ofs, that's what we do, isn't it? I know, but you know, we're Went about. Up there we're and about. I entertained the people of Stoller Hall. Of where? Stoller Hall. I'm not sure. I don't. I is, don't is think the people <laughs> there knew <laughs> it was there until we is all that showed a up. Suburb of, of Manchester? No, it's in Manchester. It's actually a music school, part of a. Um, or there's a there's a private music school called Chatham's Music School, mm -hmm. and it's the performance space. Mm -hmm. So it's a beautiful space, not as conducive. I shouldn't say this. Not made for stand-up comedy. Not made for stand-up, made for music. But it's a beautiful space, and um, and actually, it was a beautiful gig. I, they were lovely. Was it was it uh, a mixed bill, or was it you doing a solo show? It was a mixed bill. Okay. I was hosting uh, the wonderful Mick Ferry, Brennan Reese, and Tez Ilias. Okay, but two of those at least are Manchester comedians, aren't they? I, uh, they are all northern. And okay. two of them are quite local. Okay, yeah. and and how did you get on with the northern audience? You do okay in the north. Do you know what? I do all right in the North, but the North don't realize I'm from the South unless I tell them because of the whole accent. Oh, they think you're international, thing. an international yeah. act. Yeah, they get excited. And they probably... <laughs> they go, ooh, someone, well, someone, someone from foreign? America, maybe, yeah. has yeah, come they to get Manchester. Quite that is true. Do you, do you find you have that? I have noticed that with audiences, that they still get impressed or excited, by certainly by an American accent. They feel that they've got an international artiste. It depends. you got to be the right kind of American because there are some Americans that are just irritating. You know what I mean? They get up and everyone goes, oh, no, not one of those. So well, you've got to be the right kind of What, what would American. that be, New York or something? Or it's, not, it's not even a locational thing. It's, it's an attitude. It's that lack of self-awareness that some Americans have mm. where they'll get up. Or especially if they're fresh off the boat and they haven't done their research to realize that Brits are not Americans. 
you, you, you know, I, I mean, you've seen it. You know, oh, in, here, here in, in, in Britain, when you go on stage, you just want your name, nothing else. No build up, just, uh, hey, next act is, yeah. and you prove yourself. And that's the way the Brits are like, we'll, we'll decide if you're funny. It doesn't sure. matter what you've done, we will decide. In America, they do the opposite. So they go, this guy's been on Conan. This guy's been on SNL. This guy's amazing. And then the more they build him up, the more the audience is like, well, he must be good, which we don't do. And so sometimes Americans come over and insist on the introduction. And you go, honestly. Do you you don't want the introduction to go, no, no, do the introduction. Uh, yeah. And then they don't understand why they've died a death. Well, because they've already died because British audiences, we don't care about this. Is that, no. is that, that's right. But they still do that, don't they? I still see that where they, they ask the compare to tell the audience what they've been on, wh what mm -hmm. they've done, what they've won. And it's just, they insist on doing that. And as soon as they do that, of course, us as other comedians in the green room think, oh, God, don't we? We have no respect for them after that. I've even seen someone do that at a new material night. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. That, and I just thought, that oh, just, no. That, just, that makes know. the fall all the harder, doesn't it? I know. And can you remember? So you didn't. You do, obviously don't do any of that. Uh, you don't do any of that, do you? No, I was hosting. Okay. So you know, they were lucky. I now, it's a music venue. Did you you rather marvelously play the ukulele and possibly other instruments, don't you? I do, but not on stage anymore. Not, you used to do that. What, what made you stop doing that? I always thought that was one of your <laughs> unique selling points, actually. It is and it was. I found that personally, I stopped thinking that way. As I, I wanted to talk more. I wanted mm -hmm. to say more things. And you can say things in song and you can say mm -hmm. things when they rhyme. But I just found that as, a, as an artist, as an mm -hmm. artist, I started thinking more in, in spoken word mm -hmm. than in song. And then I would get very self-conscious if I was going to whip it out and do a song that was two, three, four years old. It didn't feel, you know, I mean, that's the same as doing routine that's 10 so years old. So that's a progression really, isn't it? I think, I mean, you know, in terms of being a club stand-up comedian. It certainly moved me more in that, into that purest ideal, hasn't sure. it? Because there are, there are certain clubs that don't, uh, clubs, bookers, promoters, comics that don't believe that musical comedy is a valid mm -hmm. art form. And so I certainly, I think there's certainly places I still don't play because they don't book me with my cheating stick. Uh, we, uh, that's so funny. We, but you would still do it for a solo show though, wouldn't you? I think... I think the next step for me is to tour, and I think if I tour, I'll, I'm strongly considering putting music back in, but whether it would be me and a ukulele in a room that seats more than 100, probably not, but some okay. form of music will come back in, but maybe a small band or orchestrated or backing tracks or something. So this is a development with your stand-up, and can I just say, do you, have you had a, a resurgence or a, some sort of development fairly recently with management, you've been on the telly? What's happened, say, within the last five years or post-covid maybe or was it pre-covid yeah it was, it was a mid-covid onwards i had started speaking with utc before the pandemic about possibly now, utc that's together. up the creek for listeners yes uh, no up the creek is the name of the comedy club but the management company is only called utc so you were were taken up by utc i was signed by utc during the in the mid-pandemic during, during the lull remember there was a lull one summer where yes, we all thought it was over I but do. it wasn't over so then in that lull, they signed me because uh, we wanted to hit the ground running for when the world reopened in September. Ha! That did not happen. But we we signed and we started working together. And that's, yeah, I think that's really what we can attribute everything after that. We can attribute everything in my life that's happened after that to that event, okay. uh, which uh, for which I am very grateful. And wh what was the lead up to that then? What do you think happened or what developed in your comedy or your act that, that made someone come up to you and, and say, hey, come come with us. We think we can 
work uh, with you? Uh, well, actually, I think it's, I mean, and so many of these stories in the arts are right place, right time, aren't they? And that's frustrating mm -hmm. when you, if you're an act that goes, how do I make that happen? And I go, it was a fluke. But uh, I, my agent is Kate Lennon, and she's amazing. But I've known Kate for about 10 years, 10 years, 7, 8, 9, 10 mm -hmm. years, ages and ages. Uh, and we knew each other w back when she, she used to be a comedy producer, and she worked with various brands, and then she became a radio producer for a while, and we just always stayed in touch. And then one day she ended up at UTC. We were having coffee, and I said, I'd love you to consider being my agent now mm -hmm. that you're in that position. And she said, I'd love to be your agent. And it was, you know, there was crying, there was hugging. It was, it was a and big And what's scene. happened since that decision? Since Lots that decision. Things? Well, since then, I mean, it's been whirlwind. It started with Mock the Week. Uh, I did that, and then they invited me back. I did Mock the Week. It was... Goodness gracious, it's a it's a whirlwind doing that show. You know, you like you it's incredible. It's an incredible experience. And then they invited me back for the next episode. So I did the next episode. And then after that, people started coming and offering various shows. Um I did Have I Got News for You in October, which was for me incredible because that's been on telly since I was ten years old, I mm. think. Nine years old. Twelve years. I don't know. Years and years it's been on telly. I just remember Maybe I was watching repeats. It can't be that old. <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's been on telly for years, and that's something that we as comics grew up watching. And, you know, that was one where you go, I can't believe I'm here, especially with two-thirds of, of the original cast still doing it. And uh, I did, I recorded QI the other day, which is another one that's been on telly, I think, since I was 10 years old. <laughs> it feels like they've all been on telly since I was 10 years old. Uh, and... Uh, and that um, was also just, it, again, really surreal to be sitting there. Are these things that you feel that you could have been doing a long time ago anyway, or has something happened to your act that's made people see you in a different light and thought, let's get her on these TV programs? Let's be honest. Every comic thinks that they can do those things from the moment they probably get their first gig. They go, okay, I've been paid 50 quid. I'm ready. I'm mm -hmm. ready for the big time. Um, I think it's it's tricky because how do you judge yourself as a comic versus anyone else? You're all individuals. You all progress at different rates, but you know. But it can be hard when you see someone that you did start with or even started before moving at a different rate to you or a different pace to you. And I think that we all, as comics, suffer from that. I think that's part of our psychological makeup. It's why we do what we do. It's what keeps. It's the drive. It's the you know. It's the drive that we have to to work together and yet at the same time we want to work, you have to work together. You can't not work with other comics. I mean, the show is the four or five of you together. It isn't just you. And so there, there is a certain cast like mentality to that of, you know, we are the show and you have your roles to play. Someone opens, someone hosts, someone closes. And those are slightly different roles. But at the same time, when you, when you get handed these opportunities, you know, there was always going to be part of you going, why did so-and-so get this before me? Yes, I deserve this. Why did you get it before me? But on the other hand, you walk in and then you go, oh my gosh, this is so daunting. I've never done this before and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it. So it's all of the emotions rolled into one. I've talked to other comedians on this podcast before about panel shows because I've, I've, I don't really do that sort of thing. But whenever I have done, I've realized that your moment can pass and it, the show's over before you've even said anything. Is that a separate discipline and a thing you've had to teach yourself? to be good at, you know? I, well, you know, bless you for assuming that I'm good at it. I think I still feel like I'm learning because mm -hmm. it's not 
so with gigging, there are certain things that stay the same. There are certain things that stay the same. You go to a, you go to a room. There should be a stage, some lights, a microphone. You face the audience, they face mm-hmm. you. Ideally, some of the basics are there. And then you come out with the jokes that you know work and you make it work. And then as, you know, as you'll know for having gigged for, you know, for many de- decades, more than I have, that then, then when you walk into a situation which isn't ideal, that's where you pull in your different skill sets and that's where you learn things. I mean, we all played jonglers and jonglers back in the day was A, well, when they paid, it was a paycheck, but B, it was a, it was a training ground, wasn't it? Certainly. And if you could... And, and there was a time there where being booked by jonglers meant that you had a, a robustness and a capability above and beyond a lot of other club robustness comics. Robustness is spot on, I yeah. think, yeah. <laughs> you More know, so than comedy skill. You know, that, that was it being able to something, stay up there. It? Yeah, you're right. It meant yeah. something. And I think that with panel shows, I think there is this th- similar thing is that, you you know, when you f- do your first one, you are no better than an open spot mm-hmm. in that environment because there are... Things, you know, so many different things that you don't know to think about or to learn. I mean, one of the huge things about doing panel shows is as a comic in a live stage, I have to be able to control the audience. And that's, you know, it's sort of like you are the driver and they are the horses and you are, you know, and you're, they're all, you're driving and hopefully you're keeping them all going in the same direction. But when it comes to a panel show, the audience are spectators and actually the role is to, to play with the other comics on the panel and so suddenly your green room etiquette and your green room skills are really what's being tested there not your ability to work an audience or work Mm -hmm. a crowd because they're almost secondary they're there and enjoying the record but the record by no means relies upon them to be there and of course during covid there were plenty of panel shows that just didn't have an audience and it was relying on the people in the room to make the magic and that's uh, a huge learning curve is to be able to go into a situation and and have and fit your personality to everyone else that's in the room and make sure as as you kind of mentioned make space for yourself if you don't make sure that you make space for yourself then blink and you'll Mm. miss it and that's it you're not in the show because uh, often those programs after speaking to people that have taken part other comedians they've they've said that often they're quite competitive and that some people want to steal the the laughs or be the person that gets most of the laughs or to win almost is that mm. something that you, you noticed or or did had you found you can't them not notice that okay. you cannot not notice that that is the environment that some shows create in one way or the other in different every show has its own format and therefore every show has its own environment when you record mm-hmm. in it uh, and some of them rely on that high octane uh, interaction between comics and others are a little bit more relaxed where they, where there's room for you to bring what you've pre-prepared to the show and, and to air that at the appropriate moment. So yes, that does exist. I think that I think there's a beauty I still I believe there's a beauty in coming together with everyone that's in the room and making work together rather than against each other. Um, but that doesn't always happen if the people that have been booked don't know each other. Because th- there's an assumption that we all know each other or we're all best friends, and th- and that's not the case. I mean, comedy's huge now. Yeah, I mean, I I took part in a program once where I didn't know anybody on on the show, and it wasn't very successful for me or any of the others. But I did come away thinking, if there had been comedians that I'd have known, this would have been a fantastic show. Yes. So there is that, isn't there? I think there is that, but then you know, but that's also part of being a professional, isn't it? Is mm-hmm. to go in there and do the job that you've been booked to do. Regardless sure, of... Sure, sure. So the Apollo, however, that was your first ever TV gig, was it? 
No, no. You've done uh, TV. Well, before. I mean, I've TV done TV before. Stand up. No, I've done stand up shows over oh, the years, okay. various things. And I mean, it was, uh, the it was world slightly overwhelming. Up. It was it was it a bigger event than than. Yeah, I think the Apollo was the largest venue I've played. Before that, I'd played the Drury Royal. No, is that that's not the Theatre Royal on Drury Lane. Okay. The Drury that's Royal. Right. Eh. That's it. Hey, Leicester eh. Square. <laughs> yeah, it was right I next door, <laughs> innit? Right next door. Uh the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, which I think is about twelve hundred, so I think mm-hmm. that's probably the largest. Yeah, there is a difference and it can take some some adjustment, can't it? How did you get on with that? I haven't I haven't watched your performance on the Apollo. You haven't? That's no, it. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't I'm out of here, Jeff. I cannot you, believe Did you feel overwhelmed slightly and then warm up or were you uh, relaxed straight so away or with the Apollo? I I was filming all summer and I came back from filming and was going to ease back into gig having not gigged for 6 7 weeks I was going to ease my way back into gigging and I got a call saying hey can you come do your best set on Tuesday uh someone wants to see you and I went I'll try but I haven't I haven't gigged in in almost 2 months so I went and I did you know I went down to um up the creek comedy club and did 10 minutes and I came off and I went who wanted to see me? And they went, well, it was Anthony from the Apollo. And I went, right. And then on Friday, he called and said, hey, we'd love you to do the Apollo. And I went, great. And of course, you're not going to say no to that. But the Friday was only 10 days before the recording. So I had 10 days notice, having not gigged for two months, that I was going to do the biggest gig of my life. And in addition to that, I had the Comedy Store weekend booked in, but as a host, not as a set. So I, I was looking at my diary going, I do, I'm not cancelling the comedy store, but I'm hosting all weekend. So I just, I put out all the feelers and just went, if anyone can give me any stage time, please, to help me build this 20 set. And you want it to be your goal. But the other issue is, is that we had a pandemic in between, in between the last time that I was match fit and now, which meant that you can't just go out there and go, hey, I'm going to do a set as if nothing's happened to any of us. You can't not regard it. And some of the material as well, we hadn't performed regularly in two years. Didn't feel right. Didn't feel you. Didn't feel, that's not my voice right now. That's not who I am. So it was just so many, mm-hmm. so many different things that, that led up to the Apollo. So in the end, I, I put together the set and you do a practice set and Auntie saw it, he, Anthony saw it and he was happy with it. Um, and I just, sh- you know, and it was a whirlwind of a week and then just showed up on the Tuesday and went, okay, let's see how this goes. But I... I told myself the one thing you need to do is speak. I can speak quite quickly, especially on stage and especially in a live environment was to slow down and be clear, give them the edit points, uh, be aware of the fact that 5,000 people, it takes a while because the joke has to reach the back of the room and then the laughter has to roll back again. It is almost like, it's almost like the movement of, of, you know, of, of fog or something. It's a roll. And so I thought I'm going to slow down. A to get to twenty minutes, because <laughs> I wasn't sure I would, and B and B to just make sure that it was the best televised performance possible. And in the actual performance, there were times where I reset the same line three or four times because I kept fluffing it, and the audience were looking at me, going, "What is she doing?" And I'm like, "It's for telly, doing my mm-hmm. pickups." Sure. And then, and then there was one point where I completely blanked, completely blanked for about thirty seconds, and I got to a point, and it was towards the end of the set, and I went, "Yeah, no, I." I don't, I don't know. Right? And I just stopped and I just stopped and I thought, I'm going to just wait because they can cut this out. I knew, you know, I know enough. They can cut this out. I thought, I'll wait. And 30 seconds in, and I was thinking about going, have I done this bit? Have I done that bit? What's the rest of the set? If I do the rest, because I had my final routine had all these callbacks and I couldn't remember if I'd done all the setups for the callbacks to work. <laughs> 
And I just stood there, and the whole you could feel the whole room just going, uh-oh, she's bottled uh, it, she's bottled yeah, it, she's yeah. not going to do it. And then after 30 seconds, I looked up, and I went, oh, you're still here. All right, well, let's finish then. And then I just kept going, and I did the set. And it turns out in the end, I went straight backstage and checked my script and went, no, I didn't miss anything. But just to have that one moment of panic in the middle of 5,000 people going, nah. But uh, finished the set, it was great. And it was happy. Well, that's Came good advice. Time. I mean, is, is that the sort of advice you'd give? Because we have lots of new acts listen to this podcast who eventually some of them will... Do the Apollo. Will do the Apollo or, or TV in general. Mm. Uh, that's the sort, What sort of advice would you give them? Because one thing I've noticed when I've done... I've done quite a lot of TV is that even if it's going badly, you can still act as if it's going well. And that's quite a difficult thing to learn, to carry on smiling when jokes don't land. It's yes. very difficult because in the edit, they will put in laughter if there wasn't any. And it, you've got to look as if you're you're having fun and it's going well. That's the only advice I would give to people. Well, yeah, that is, I mean, that's that's the real lesson, isn't it? All mm. of TV is a lie. Yeah. Uh, none of it's real. But yes, I think that I think you're right. You've got to keep going as if it's going well. And that, funnily enough, brings us back to American comics because American comics will, you know, you'll see them pause for TV laughter. You see some when they're doing it live, and you'll go, "What are they doing?" Like okay. they'll say a line, and then they'll pause and they'll smile, and you go, "Why are you smiling? Okay. No one else is smiling. That wasn't funny." But what they're doing is they've trained themselves to pause for TV laughter wow. because they go, "If I pause here and smile, the edit will add in laughter to make it not look weird." But essentially, when you're recording a stand-up set for for television, yes, the audience is there, and you need the audience there, otherwise, it's not stand-up. But you're not actually performing to them. You're performing to the people at home, and yeah, that's what you need to remember. That's what you have to remember, isn't it? You need to remember yeah. this for the people at home. So one of the other things about doing the Apollo is that I love to interact with the audience. I love to talk to people and, and go up. But if you, in the Apollo, go up to the front row and start talking to them too much, all that the people at home will see is the top of your head mm -hmm. because that's where the camera angles are. So if you're constantly looking down, then that's actually not mm -hmm. enjoyable and that's not good telly. Okay. So you want to be always be looking up, looking out, you're playing. Oh, you're not actually playing to the audience. You're playing to the back of the of the stalls because it's halfway between the top of the stalls and the bottom of the circle. So it's all. I think you always have to remember that you are on camera, which is tricky because it does change. It can change, not does. It can change how natural you come across. You mean if you're used to someone who's interacting with an audience and then you're not interacting, is that what you or mean? If it, you're, you're, or you don't just feel the pace natural. that you work at. I mean, really what you want for the best is you just want to go out there, be natural, do what you do, be yourself, perform it. But if you fluff a line, because it's telly, say the line again because they'll just cut to a different angle, they'll pick up on that line and they'll keep going. But don't keep the fluff in. If it's, you know, I mean, it's a shame if yeah, it's ruined it's the hard, joke. That's a hard thing to take on board when you're a stand up comedian because we're used to editing ourselves and everything being the definite article. And I have real problems, even though, even in this podcast with Sam, the producer, who say, we can, we can edit, we can edit. But I, I'm not used to making mistakes and having to go over it and redoing it. I'm used to what I say, that's the thing. We, um, but that's true, yeah, yeah. I, I did that. The first program I did was um, a stand-up show called Gas, which was in the mid-'90s when I very first started. And I kept forgetting all, all the time. But they just stop and, and go back to where you are. So that's something worth remembering. But, yeah, sure. If you, I mean, that's what you're in control of. You're in control of your stage time during that record. But very, you're not in control of whether the producer is willing to let you come back out again and pick a lineup. So you've been going for a long while, haven't you? Can you? I, I can't remember when I first met you or when it w you first started. Can you remember what sort of period comedy was in when you first started? 
I don't. Well, I, do they have names? The different periods. I mean, what 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 was 2010, 2011? What was that? What period was that? I don't know. Probably the is that uh, probably the last knockings of jonglers period for live stand up comedy. I'd imagine. I definitely did jonglers while you could get paid for it. <laughs> that I remember. Um, I certainly got most of my. I got most. I think I was one weekend out when they closed. You know, there's what they owed me for the last okay. weekend. I did. Yeah, I lost a weekend as well. After all those years of not losing any money, it was yeah. one weekend. Yeah. The last weekend. I know, it was that they last got one. me. Oh. And I'm still pissed off, but I'm still looking for people over there. I still can't let that go. No, I'm irritated. It was as like, well. you know, I don't know, 800 were... quid or something. It's a lot of it money. It was. It was yeah. close to a grand. So did you do your open spots? Did you start comedy in this country? I did. Well, Scotland. But yes, I did. I so where were it. you then? How were you in Scotland? Because I don't I even know where you're St. from Andrews. or anything. I don't know oh, anything about you. Can I'm we a start ninja, there? I'm a ninja. Are you? Yeah, I'm from I'm from everywhere but nowhere. Are you? Are you? Have you got? Is your parents in the military or something? I'm trying nope. to work out. My parents are where Dutch. You they live around. in Holland. So I went to the American School of the Hague growing up. Okay. Hence the accent. Did they have military people in that school or? No, they okay. would go to military schools. Okay. So that it was mainly people whose kids worked for, uh, sorry, whose parents worked for Shell, because there's a lot of Shell oil in the in Holland. Mm -hmm. um, the European Space Agency is there, so we had um, some very clever kids as well from that, and then also just a range of diplomats' children that lived near the Hague, because those it, that yeah. lived near Amsterdam would go to the American School of Amsterdam, and those that lived near Rotterdam would go to the International School of Rotterdam. Okay. So there's quite a few international schools all over Europe, and that's what our sports circuit would be. So if we had a game of volleyball, weirdly, we wouldn't go and play Rotterdam, which was nearby. We'd go and play Brussels, or we'd go and play Hamburg, and we'd all get on a bus and then tootle off to another country. How did you get to Scotland and then... Then I went to uni in Scotland. So I went to St. Andrews. What did you study in, in at university? I studied experimental pathology at St. Andrews. What is that? What's experimental pathology? So pathology in a nutshell, is, you know, when you have a smear or a blood test, uh, then someone looks at it in the hospital and checks whether there's abnormalities. That's pathology, is mm -hmm. to check physiology for anything that's gone wrong. So mm -hmm. physiology gone wrong is pathology. Uh, experimental pathology is when you actually do scientific research into it. So study of disease okay. is, is one way you could look at it, but at a microbiology level. And did you start the career... In something well, then I to went that? to, I did my PhD, I came down to London and did my PhD at UCL. And so then I continued and in that's a, where... In a more, in a research on the same <laughs> Well, I specialized in viruses, so I became a viral bioinformatician, which is, um, which is what I did my, my PhD in. So I lived in that world for about five years. But as I did my PhD and, and associated work... I also was doing stand-up comedy. My first stand-up gig was to a group of fellow students, and we'd set up a night ourselves and just went, hey, let's all do a bit of stand-up. And so we all stood up and did a bit, and then a bunch of other people sat there drinking wine, wearing berets, thinking they were so grown up. But really, we And you just, pursued it. We you went students. on to pursue it when you moved to London. Then, well, I moved to London, and it was, it was then... I'd only done it twice at uni, but then when I moved to London, it suddenly became a thing that I did, you know, as, as you go, oh, wait, I do that. And we see it now. How many people come up to you and go, I'm a comedian, and you go, mm, you're not, you're an open spot, and there's a difference, but they don't know that because they get up on stage, and so that was mm, the same thing as that sure. I went, I'll do comedy, uh, and that's, you know, your first gig is always amazing because you've got so much adrenaline and so much support in the room and everything else, and then your second through 500th gig is a bit shit. Hi, British Comedian of the Year, Jeff Innocent here. 
I just want to take some time out to tell you about my comedy course. It usually runs as six weekly three-hour sessions on Sunday afternoons from 1 to 4 p.m. at the famous Up the Creek Comedy Club in Greenwich, South London. On the course, amongst other things, you will learn how to write original jokes and comedy routines, discover your unique comic persona, study performance skills such as stagecraft, presence, audience interaction, and microphone technique. You will also receive constant advice from myself and any guest tutors and have the opportunity to perform your very first gig. It's aimed at absolute beginners and people who are already performing stand-up comedy but are looking to get better or anyone who just fancies learning about stand-up comedy. So you don't have to want to be a comedian. But I warn you, you probably will by the end of the course. It takes place upstairs at Up the Creek, which is a fantastic space for a workshop with its own stage and lighting, and it's totally conducive to the studying, discussing, and performing of stand-up comedy. There's also usually a whole social element that develops in these workshops, which is totally out of my hands, where new friends and comedy comrades are made. It's always a very supportive culture. In fact, two of the students got pregnant at the same time at the previous workshop. So if you're trying for a baby, maybe this is the workshop for you. Our end-of-course show with invited audience of family and friends takes place downstairs on the main stage so the students get to experience the bright lights of performing at Up the Creek Comedy Club. And it's all professionally filmed and edited so you get a souvenir of your performance. Now, I've been performing at Up the Creek for 25 years. And it's about time they brought the next acts on because I'm running out of material. Forgive me, I couldn't resist that. You will learn how to write better jokes than that. The point is I still get the same thrill every time I walk on that stage. The most recent course is now full, but they run regularly throughout the year. So for more details about the course and other options, please visit www.jevitizant.com where there should be a link or go directly to www.innocentacademy.com Now, back to the podcast. So when did you start going to Edinburgh and doing solo shows? 2011, I did a shared show, you know, because you'd start with like a split show. And then 2012, I did every, you know, what you do is you put everything you have into one show. And you just sort of hope it reaches over the 50-minute mark. Um, And so I did that. But I knew nothing about Edinburgh. I knew nothing about the award. I knew nothing about the newcomers nomination or anything like that. I went up and I actually was brought up by a cabaret producer and put in the cabaret section of the of the program. But everyone knew I was a comic. So the next year when I went up with a show, I wanted to be considered for newcomer. And they said, you can't be considered for newcomer. You're not a newcomer. And I said, but I wasn't in the comedy section last year. I was in the cabaret section and then I had a big fight with them where they you know they eventually you know grumpily went oh, okay fine and 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 then sent me the public judge who came once and never again and you go oh I see so I completely didn't get considered for newcomers because I didn't realize at the time how that was supposed to work and now in hindsight I go oh wait I wasn't in the running anyway because it's uh, you know it's a um, it's an industry, and, and it's all about buzz before you even get there, and I didn't have any of that and everything else. But that was my first show, uh, which I played at, I think it was called the Blue Posts at the time, but now it's called the Voodoo Rooms. Mm. Have you been doing Edinburgh ever since then? Every year, are you one of those sort of people? that? No. Okay. No, I did it every year from 2011 to 2016. 
I did five solo shows in a row and then broke my brain. Genuinely thought I might never be able to. So write you did go for five again. years, though. I five did. Five years on the Trump, yeah. 13, 14, 15, 16. Yes, I did five shows in a row, hours, which uh, huge learning lessons, huge learning curves and everything mm -hmm. else. But um, yeah, ultimately, that's too. it was too much. Did you go with concepts that were very different from what you were doing on the circuit? Yes, or, okay. every show was a concept. I mean, the first one was just all my stand-up, but it was an identity concept. Who am I? You know, somebody asked me, where are you from? And I went, well, this is why that's not an easy question. The second show uh, was called Spethel because I had found out that I had um, autism in that year. And somebody had gone online after a show and accused me of um, picking on people with special needs. And then somebody else, it, it all happened overnight while I was asleep. And then someone else came in and said, well, that's weird because she has autism, but I hadn't come out about it. So I was outed. So this person attacked me and then someone else outed me. And then this whole, you know, argument ensued online. And then I woke up the next day on Sunday morning and went, what the fuck? Uh, oh, so, so there was some up. controversy around that then? Uh, well, there wasn't, con the controversy was that she thought, she thought that I was an able-bodied person talking about disability when I had no right to. Mm -hmm. And everybody else, and those that knew, which was a small group of people, went, this doesn't make any sense. She is in her, she is herself mm -hmm. neurodiverse, so what are you talking about? And then they all started attacking each other. Uh, and so off the back of that, I wrote a show about identity. Again, it was an identity show, but it is about attitudes towards disability and, and how I was, how I was seen as able-bodied until I wasn't able-bodied, and then they were, and then it completely flips everyone's point of view and go, oh no, wait, she's not able. Oh, she can say those things. So it was about that, and also about how you know, what is the best way to respect someone that is considered to be disabled by our society, and how do and, you know, and how should we treat them and view them? Because one could argue that that particular woman, she so she had given up her life to look after her two sons, who were themselves disabled. And one of them was able to go to university or go to college and 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 study something, which is incredible and amazing and, and, and well done. But she was still sort of marching in front of him, banging this drum, going, my kid is disabled, my kid is disabled. And, and part of the show was going, is that actually helping him or not? I mean, mm -hmm. let him go and just be a student at university. Do you need to still march in front of him with banging this drum? I don't know if disability is the correct term, but what is or w how would you describe what uh, your disability? Is it a disability? Well, it can be. It depends. I mean, autism is, is renowned for being a spectrum, which means that it it disables some people more than others and in different ways. And in, so it's know, autism. We're talking colors. about autism. We're talking about okay. autism. Okay. Um, it was it was Asperger's when I was first diagnosed, but Asperger's has been removed as a medical term uh -oh. in the in intervening well, I years. I didn't know that. What's the difference there then? What is well, th I think that was part of the problem is that they didn't feel that they could clearly define Asperger's enough to, to warrant it being a separate medical diagnosis. But Asperger's is generally uh, considered to be uh, those on the high-functioning end of the spectrum. Um so that they that many people with Asperger's still are autistic, but have maybe enough capability to to be able to live independently, to you know to be able to hold jobs, do other things. But there's still a very low number of people with autism that are that are employed. Out of the numbers that would like to be employed, not as many are employed as 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 would like to be. So was this recognized or identified early in your life, or is no, this was, something that happened as, as, as an, an adult, adult? As an adult. And be how does it manifest itself? What are um, the... 
I mean, I have, Simpsons, so I have all like. the sense, I, I cert personally, because it's different for every person as well. So this is not across the board. I have a lot of sensory sensitivities. So everything's slightly heightened. I have a processing issue between my ears and my brain, which means that uh, your brain is supposed to, like if we're talking right now, I'm supposed to hear your voice and most brains would go, right, I'm talking with Jeff and I will hear his voice, but I'm also hearing every time this cable brushes my shoulder, I hear that and I hear it as loud. So I'll miss, so in general conversation, general life, I miss a lot of words. I miss a lot of signals because my brain hears everything kind of at the same volume. It mm -hmm. doesn't distinguish. Uh, I can't have, you know, I, I can't do, what is hot for me is warm for you. Um, what is what is probably a pleasant taste to you for alcohol is incredibly bitter and and caustic to me, so I don't drink. Uh, yeah, so it's called. There's a massive range of things that are connected. So th that's to that. the sensory stuff, and then there's also just the way your brain is built. My I always thought growing up, I was like, my brain is built like a computer. That's how it. And my mother actually, who probably is also autistic, although she'll never get diagnosed at, at, at her stage in life, but she is a computer programmer. So my mother, who was, you know, a Filipino woman in the, in the 70s and 80s, worked full time and loved her job as a computer programmer. I mean, there were signs. And, <laughs> and so, and I grew up with a brain that, and I, brain that worked like a computer. I understood, you know, math and, and, and computer, computer, you know, computer language, it all made a lot of sense to me. And what didn't make sense to me was other people's emotions and reactions and how they would come across, how would they make certain decisions. And therefore, that affected a lot of television that I watched. I wouldn't get it. There was just so much television that I go, I don't get how we got to this place. And they'll say, well, that was because this guy made that decision. Why did that guy make that decision? It made no sense. And then they go, well, because the writers made him make that decision. So really, that's just shit telly. Um, <laughs> you know, instead of having a reason or having, you know, a, you know, cause and effect that leads from A to B to C to D, it was just, we're going from A to B to C and then it's C, man makes random decision and then we get to big finale. No. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I didn't understand a lot of television growing up and, and generally my emotional state is very different. So I, I mean, you learn to mask it as you get older and females with autism are known as chameleons because we're very good at mimicking or, or, or adapting to a situation in front of us or, or faking it. We sort of fake it until we get it. And so I'll do that a lot. And if I don't know how to feel, I'll usually check in with someone else and go, what, what, are, we, what are we feeling? How, how does this, mm. what's supposed to happen? Um, and sometimes you go, okay, yeah, I can do that. And sometimes you go, nope, that makes no sense. I'm out. I'm out. Can't do it. Uh, don't get it. So how, what's the relationship between that and you being a stand-up comedy <laughs> Well, I think I think part of it is um, I think part of it is is based on what that meant my childhood was. So I was quite not ostracized as a child, but I was certainly very independent as a child, very alone as a child, um, separate. You know, I didn't make friends very well. I didn't have a lot of friends. I wasn't accepted into groups very easily. Um, so like a lot of comedians would regard themselves as outsiders. Yes, it, I was definitely, I think for me, I was definitely an outsider. And then when I did work in office spaces and the rest of it, you know, there were just, I mean, there were, there were definitely things that I said that if they didn't already accept me as weird or other, I would have been sent to HR for. Do you know well, what but you the know? process of creating comedy, though, how mm. does it, what's, the, you know, how different That's is your relationship with that? That process. I think, well, I think part of it is the, the lack of filters. So part of it is that I'll say what other people seem to have a night, a filter not to say. And it's also the way you see things. You see things slightly, 
you, you see them from a different angle. And when you point that out, everyone sees can see that angle, and, but they don't naturally think of that angle. And I think that's... It's so have you found it's helped rather than hindered or, or um, both? I think it just is. You know, that okay. is the way my brain works. I don't think finding out I was autistic changed my comedy. It changed, mm -hmm. you know, it took a while to accept and it certainly meant that I had more to write about and more to say. But I think that you think in a particular way you know, and, and, and of course, as you grow and evolve and as you write more and more as a comic or as you change as a person, that also, you know, that 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 will have the same effect on you as it has on me because, you know, because yeah. that you, lends you, itself to your sure. art. Uh, do you come across many people that have a similar, or in a similar situation to you in stand-up comedy? Oh, yes. More and more people are coming out mm -hmm. with autism and ADHD diagnoses. But it's also it being diagnosed and recognized as well, isn't it? it not everybody... Not everybody will need... Will, but that's the thing. Do you, you find that you can you can diagnose people before they there's know? There's an ADAR. There's definitely an ADAR where you feel it and you go, yep, I think you could be. And sometimes <laughs> people go, oh, I think I might be on the spectrum. You're like, nope, sorry. You very much are not one of us. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a certain ADAR. But it's... It, you know, diagnosis is, is meant... If if it hinders your life, that's why I ended up getting diagnosed because there were things that I was struggling with, and for a long time they're like, we think you might be bipolar, we think you might have um, was it a chronic depression. They, before they came to, oh, you're autistic. They went through all these other things that they went, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. I got treated for group anxiety at one point. That was not good. Um, that did not help. But you you, you know, I went and sought medical help because I was struggling. Uh, but there are many people out there that could well be considered autistic, but if it doesn't impact your life negatively, then there's no reason to necessarily go out there and, and slap a label on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, the uh, flip side is that if you think you might be, then just read the books and start implementing the help and the therapies that are already out there. Don't You don't have this, this whole... I mean, that was in the show special, this whole point of going, and now you have a label, ta-da, you know, today you have been given a label. You don't, that is, that is an arbitrary point. You don't need that to happen. Do what you need to do in order to make yourself better. And if that's read a book about it and implement some of those therapies so that they help you, then do it. But you don't need a doctor to tell you who you are. Just make the changes that work for you. And that's what I had to do. I had to figure out which ones work for me and which ones don't. Because just finding out that I'm autistic didn't mean that automatically every medicine or every of change course. of schedule was going to work. Is it fair to say that attitudes have changed about this and that more people are prepared to come out or to suggest that they may have similar problems and at the same time more is, being, more is known Yes. about this sort oh, of thing. Definitely. It's making it easier for I people mean, to recognize this and to to admit very to much, it. In very much. Things have changed. I mean, certainly, the, one of the reasons I wasn't diagnosed sooner is the idea that a woman might have it was almost non-existent. It was a boy's thing. It was very much something oh, that was that. studied and identified in boys. Is it still gender-specific in any way whatsoever? Uh, no. Okay. It never was gender-specific. It was just that it was it was first identified in boys and only studied in boys and therefore believed for many years to only be a male fiction. And then there were stats going, well, four, uh, you know, uh, I think they were sort of saying one, one out of every four people with autism is female. And you go, well, no, one out of every four people with autism has been, uh, females have been diagnosed, but that doesn't mean that those are the actual numbers. So I would say very much not, but it presents very differently in, in, in the male brain as the female brain. Um, so it, it's not as, you can't, 
it's not as straightforward and it not as much is known or is recognized in female presenting autism as, as male presenting autism. So we're still learning on that regard. But I certainly, it was I was getting diagnosed right. That's also why I went through all these other diagnoses first because they just didn't, I was, you know, at one point I was told I don't walk like I have autism. And that was by a doctor who thought that everyone with autism tiptoed. And I went, how am I more up to date on this than you are? Well, I know why, because I'm the autistic. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, we are learning more and more. We are more aware of it now. But people generally are just more empathetic to the diversity of life, uh, you know, and more conscientious to it. And that didn't used to happen before. So I think that that's a huge difference. But I think that there's also a little bit of a trend of everyone, as we sort of talked about, rushing out and going, where's my label? And you go, what it is, but this isn't about label. So that's why I didn't tell anyone I had it, because I, first of all, needed to get used to it myself. And I wasn't ready to come out when that, when the kerfuffle happened um, online, uh, on social media. I wasn't actually ready to come out with it because I didn't know what that meant for me. I was still trying to figure it out for myself. And I think one of the things that, one of my pet peeves is when people self-diagnose, rush to get diagnosis, get diagnosed with what they self-diagnosed, which is not a bad thing in itself. I mean, especially there was at one point a stat that said that about 99% of people with Asperger's self-identify correctly. But this kind of rush to get the answer that you already think is the right answer and then go and then become a spokesperson for that right off the back of that I think is a bit quick. I think that if you do suspect that you may have something, ADHD, autism, any of it, and you do seek to go down that path of diagnosis, then sit with it for a while and see what that actually means for you. Mm -hmm. Because... For me, certainly, it was a huge identity shock because everything I thought that just made me different and unique actually was in a textbook. It was mm. in a textbook that someone had written about <laughs> women like me. And I went, well, <laughs> hang on a second. Then who am I if everything that, I, that I'm special, everything that I thought made me special isn't special because everybody in, my, in that club sure. does it? And that took me a long time to get used to. Is, is comedy a good place to be with something like that? The comedy world, the comedy culture, being a comedian. Is that as good a place as anywhere else as a job? It's, I mean, on it, it's so unique. I mean, I'm I'm the type of autistic that gets scared by routine. I mean, everybody uh, thinks that we all like routine. No, I can't stand it. Uh, you know, if I'm doing, you know, the idea of a nine-to-five job scares the bejesus out of me. Going to the same place every day, the same commute couldn't do it but for some people that's what they you know that's what they prefer and, and that works for them I think that the thing about comedy is that as you know you are your own business and that works for me I didn't I worked in civil service for a while and I couldn't get my head around the hierarchy and I couldn't get my head around why I should respect the guy that was two levels above me just because he was two levels above me when he was clearly so inept at his job mm -hmm. and dead man's shoes wasn't going to get rid of him you know so it so for me self-employment works but it's it's hard. It's not easy. And and personally, I, I'm a bit old school. I think maybe it comes from my parents, but I believe in professionalism. And I don't want my condition to ever get in the way of me being seen as a professional. And and sometimes that's really hard. And sometimes I take a huge knock or I have, you know, on some, I'll be cr almost crawling home from work because I've overdone it. But I don't want anyone, you know, I don't want the job to suffer. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something to remember is that if if it's not, I think self-employment is one of the hardest hardest forms of employment mm -hmm. that there is. And so you have to be able to do that. Uh, you're and I do have a lot of help, to be fair. I do. Right, have a lot but you're also a mother as well, a working mother. How many children do you have? 
27, isn't yes, it? 27. Yes, I know. I have I have four in total. I have a stepson and three of my own. Okay, which you look at you so that's four children that you look after and, and Well, on a daily uh, my basis stepson's too. older and okay. so he he's a grown-up now and he lives on his own, but the three that I made are still And at talk home. to me about that because I think most people in stand-up comedy are still blokes and possibly not even married there's a lot of young people now yeah. certainly don't have children mm. so how's that you know bringing up children and the unusual aspect of being a, a stand-up comedian in terms of time and traveling and and those those it's, demands how have you managed to it's juggle a double-edged that? sword it's a double-edged sword because the it means that my children rarely if ever got a bedtime story from me because i'd start work at bedtime it means that they also rarely get to see me when they're on school holidays because their school holidays are our busy periods. Christmas is the big one. Summer holidays is, is Edinburgh. Mm. Easter is a bank holiday weekend. So the moment that they're off, I'm, you know, I'm traveling. And then, and then of course, there's the travel. Like I was, yesterday I was in, in Manchester, so that was a night away. And right now they all have exams. Uh, so they're, they're all, you know, having to help exams. I mean, tests at school they're not big exams but but still there is you want to be there to be able to you know provide that extra support at home if they need help with with their reading or anything like that so it is from that point of view it is it is quite difficult but then on the flip side it means that I was able to go to every school assembly at 9 30 in the morning mm. um me too yeah you know go volunteer I did a lot of different types of volunteering over the years at you know PTA and school fates and and just having a presence there or having you know being a part of their school life has been made much easier right now I'm actually a governor at their school as well which uh, even though that I mean they don't see that you know but there is a certain to be there's something to be felt I think to say that you know I am trying to be as involved as I can given given my my schedule given my sure. lifestyle with your life and and then it's also about making sure that you do take when you take that downtime and i must confess i'm not if they ever hear this they'll be like you don't do that but it's it's being conscientious of when you take downtime of taking downtime and making sure that you try and mm -hmm. be with them and i and i i hold my hands up i haven't always succeeded at that because the flip side of of being in love with your job is that you're in love with your job and you love doing your job and you love being your job and you love your job and when you're self-employed your job is your phone nowadays it's your phone and the moment it pings you go that could be a job offer um and so you can't put it and, down and of course there's there's always the creative process which is something you can't actually always put to bed or put a time limit on yeah. in that it's I mean, always I mean, on your mind. I mean, if they're going to say funny it's shit, I'm going to write it down, right? Mm. I mean, that's the thing yeah. about being a comedian's kid. Do you try out material on your children? Yeah. I know. And Instead I'm of a bedtime story, do you say, hey, what's this? What do you think of this? Do you do that? I think that's probably better than the way I do it, which is just go, that I'm talking about that on stage. What you just did just <laughs> then, I'm, I'm, that's going on stage. Uh, so that's the... Yeah, that's the flip side of it. Also, something that's all I've always thought was really cool about you is that you live in Covent yeah, Garden. We do. I think everyone thinks that's cool, don't they? Uh, I think I mean, that's it's just cool. Such a I cool mean, thing. I mean, Rhea, why did you marry the man you married? He has a flat in Covent Garden. I mean, it's a no-brainer, yeah. right? And and he had abs. Um, but so <laughs> how shallow am I? But yeah, my husband was. Um, my husband is a kung fu master, and he lived and worked in and around Covent Garden for years before I met him. And that allowed him entry into a very unique housing co-op. It's a social housing co-op. And so by the time we uh, hit it off... Uh See, I know that you're used to saying my husband's a kung fu master, but it is... I'm sure there'll be people <laughs> going, sorry, can we just... 
we just go back on that. What does he do? So you're yeah, <laughs> yeah. The I standard comedian and the kung fu master. I still can't get my head around that. That's a job almost as well. But yeah, but look what our job is. It, yeah, I know. Yeah, but it is a job being a kung it fu. It is master. a job. He runs his own kung fu school, and okay. he and and he does a very special form of self defense. So he does modern urban self defense, which okay. is it isn't pajamas in a dojo it's sure. he'll go to office places and teach an office you know he went um, when discovery moved offices down to chiswick he was brought in for a couple of weeks to help them with the emotional turmoil of moving and, and they have to change their commute and they have to find a new way of working and they have a new office and desk and everything so he that's part of kung fu as well it's basically self-defense from a very minute level defense against um self-attack if you're insecure all the way up to you might be knifed in the street at night but all of those skills and so that's what he does which is which has is he amazing. taught you much of this oh yes yeah it's why he hasn't gotten near me in 10 years he taught me too well <laughs> i'm going to test you out next time i see you on the circuit i'm going to attack you are you from behind what happened yeah i do i've been studying i study martial arts uh, and um it's uh the 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 the, the one I do is very practical and is about is about uh, being on the streets. And the first thing we we have to look for before we engage with anyone is to see where the CCTV cameras are. That's how up to date it is. Because if there's cameras there, you have to approach it in a different way. Um, <laughs> look submissive and look as if you're on the defence. Are you able to look attack. submissive, Jeff? I'd love to see. Well, you that's a problem submissive. I've got. Yeah, with my whole. I mean, don't start because. Age has been good to me with my stand-up comedy and it's given me a bit of vulnerability and my deafness as well. And now I have a limp because I've got something wrong with my foot. So when they see me limp and they see the hearing aids, I'm hoping, and my age, but, but my, my comedy has changed since I've got older and I think people... Um, embrace me more and i think i think vulnerability is very important well, in, you've in got comedy. i mean but i think to be fair to you you've been embraced because you've never stopped evolving as a comic i mean you're the best you've ever been well that's very nice of you to say so and i'm uh, sure you're you're doing the same thing i'm I, d I to be honest i don't think i'm evolving at the rate that you are I mean, you're constant. You're always writing. Always new. Every time I see you, it's new stuff. It's uh, new jokes. And, uh, and let's be honest, you and approach. I, <laughs> you and I both know that there's some comics that just sort of hit a plateau, and then that's it. Sure. You know, maybe one or two jokes over five. I, 10 I wonder years, if what actually my impetus is frightened of not earning any money. You know, I think could, I think I mean, my impetus is less uh, artistic and more a working class desire to not be unemployed. And I think I probably see myself more as a craftsperson mm. like uh, possibly like a sort of ornate plasterer or bricklayer who if that wall isn't right you're not going to uh, you're not going to be asked back so yeah uh, but that's not a bad thing anything that drives you to be creative I that's think. Uh, we could make a new show cowboy comics yeah they yeah. only ever play the gig once now um i want to tell you you had a show called Twitch face resting. Is that correct? Resting Twitch resting face. Resting Twitch face. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Yeah, is that what's funny about getting the words the wrong way around? Does that make a huge difference to the meaning? Maybe yes, this is, it does. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is my spectrum now. I don't know what no, the difference is. No, it's not is. a spectrum. It's your oh, age, Jeff. Okay. So there's a phrase called resting bitch face. I've never so heard So resting of bitch face is when somebody's not smiling, they okay. look like they're really angry or bitchy. Oh, okay. So and so you might, you know, in the morning, probably we all have resting bitch face. When we wake what up, what culture is this specific like to? This ours. This, when this say one, ours, Britain, Britain, you mean Britain, America, Western culture, it, resting bitch never, why face. Why have I never heard of it? 
Because um, you look like a ray of sunshine, whether you're smiling or not. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly my problem. So, where did you get the term "twitch face" from? That's so, rest you, well, so let's let's come on. This is first what we really all, want to get to before you the, go. This is the, so, first can of I tell all, this story? Is it okay to tell this story? Yeah. Okay. First of all, I have. So, as part of the autism, I I developed a twitch and a and and a I I, I twitch basically, and and it developed when I was nine years old. And we went to the doctor, and the doctor went, eh, it'll be gone by the time she's 20, and it's never left me. And it turns out that it's it's in the family of Tourette's. It's, you know, it's it's a, a twitch condition or a, a stimming um, okay. condition. So I have a twitch, and uh, I was playing Bristol's Jonglers with a couple of comics, uh, myself and Susan Murray and one other comic. And we all exchanged numbers on the Thursday, um, we all exchanged them on Thursday, but also on the I Thursday. You're being so discreet the way you'd start the discussion. Oh, story. you know what? It's who fantastic. doesn't love a I big I wonder who up. that other comic was. I wonder was. who it was. So we all exchanged, but on that Thursday, I'd been having real problems. We'd been having, we were being threatened with eviction. We were being unfairly uh, targeted or something. There was a real issue. And so I, being autistic, had waxed lyrical about that all the way from the hotel to the venue. Um, and and had and to the to the to the exhaustion of the other two comics. So when on the Saturday I texted the uh, the guy and said, "Hey, do you want to meet up early for dinner?" <laughs> he texted back and said, "Yeah, sure, that'd be great, but do we have to tell Twitch Face?" At which point I wrote back and went, "Jeff, it is Twitch Face." <laughs> yep. Well, basically, guys, that <laughs> man was me. Now, I've got a slightly different version. Oh, okay. In that what happened was I said, you'd better tell Twitch Face. Mm. So I was still being inclusive. Don't tell me you can find the I set. think I could probably no find the I wonder if I could. Unbelievable. I mean, give me a couple minutes. So here's my version of the story while, while Rhea's being um, uh, on the spectrum and kept the text is that I worked with Rhea and Susan Murray, it was. We worked at yes, Bristol Yes, it was Jonglers. Susan Murray, whom I love. And I don't think I'd ever, possibly hadn't met you before then, maybe. Uh, no, I think that was, was probably. So we do the Thursday, and on the Friday I get a text, which I just assumed was Susan Murray, because I didn't know you, and I thought, you well, I know You hadn't saved Susan. our numbers in your phone. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not good with that sort of thing. And I get this text saying, um, yeah, should we go down early for one of the dinners at Jongler's? one of the Christmas dinners that they used to give you. And I went, yeah, but you better tell Twitch face. You did. Uh, it, I have it here. And it, it, I did say that, yeah? You yeah, I said, do we want to try and get to the gig early to get a food order in? You said, what time did you have in mind? I said, not sure, but I need to eat tonight, and I know how busy they were last night. And you said, okay, name a time, I'll meet you in reception. You had also better inform Twitch face. There you go. Hey, well, hey. I don't know why I'm trying to save <laughs> something out of this as if I'm some sort of hero. However, now, what I'm, I, I must say to people listening, what this story is, is sending the wrong text to the wrong person. It's the greatest wrong text story I've heard. <laughs> you get people say, oh, I told my mum I'm having a wank or something and I thought it was someone else. But I think this is, is I've told this, you know, the last time I worked with you, I told, when you left, I told the audience this story. Did you? Yeah, I did, yeah. I said, that woman who's just left, I'm going to tell you a story. And I uh, got massive laughs out of it. Sorry about that. But, but you know, they, were, expense, they weren't though. on my side. Yeah, well, I don't but... know. I think it was me still feeling guilty. But when you told me, I mean, what I also have to say to our listeners is I felt so ashamed. Because in a way, all it was was just a throwaway sort of blokey kind of, oh, well, oh big nose or, or whoever. It was one of those sort of things. And it's the sort of thing... Sort of way I used to carry on with your mates, you know. It reminds me of 
Our local, um, I used to live on an estate that had a traveller's site, and they had somebody who was severely disabled, I'm not sure what it was, who was in a wheelchair, and they gave him a licence plate which said Wally 1. And that was just their way of having fun with whatever it was. So it was it was meant like that, but when I realised it was you, I felt so ashamed and guilty. But what I did, if you remember, to pay penance, I carried your shopping bags around Primark the next day. <laughs> Because I thought, I've got to do something here to but make you, it all all right. And you, yeah, but I never go in Primark. You felt so bad. Well, you I've never felt, wanted, no, yeah, I did felt, feel so bad. And did. I felt bad up until you told me what that show was. And I thought, oh, it's all all right now. Do you know that? It was fine on the, so I said, yeah. Jeff, this is Twitch face. And then when we got, then you didn't meet in the lobby and, and you avoided me at the gig. And I could tell, I could see what you were doing. You were waiting to catch me by myself in the dressing room so you could apologize, which I, cause I couldn't figure it out. And then you apologize. I was like, it's fine. Cause I know that I twitch, but this is what I mean by as an autistic, I have an yeah, additional that emotional me out, makeout. The yeah, fact that you're autistic helped me out. Yeah, huge. If you weren't autistic, you'd have probably been really upset, maybe really. I mean, what, I mean, I don't see the point getting upset. But did upset. you borrow that from me for your show title? Well, you? that's where it came from. Right. Of course Fantastic. it did. Fantastic. So yes. in a way, how, how <laughs> weird is that? <laughs> Not only exonerated... That's fantastic. Oh no no, you are you are. I felt ashamed. You up need until to feel ashamed all thought, the time for that. Jeff. I thought that's such all a childish It's why I'm here. I'm, it's why I know, I'm here. I know you're entitled to never bad. let me forget that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the show was successful. It was actually. Uh, it was a really great. good show. I, I need the percentage from that from coming up with the title. So that's the story I wanted to get to. <laughs> uh, that's what this whole. That's, the, that's what this was for you to be able to, to apologize to, to me story. in so person. I can apologize to you publicly in front publicly. of hundreds of thousands of people. It was just me being a sort of silly teenage bloke, really. But thankfully, I'm still alive. And, and you took that and used it as a title. That's fantastic. I feel so good about when you. T I, th I think you told me. You showed me, didn't you? You yeah, said, I Jeff, did. I've got something to show you. And in that moment, all of that, all of that. Uh, all of that guilt and feeling ashamed just just drifted away. Just so away. thank you for that. Well, oh. we've come to an end then on that fantastic, uh, that fantastic <laughs> note. So, um, okay, what what are you doing? Where can people find you? Where can they see you? Where can they make contact with you on social? Well, media? I'm on all the socials. Um, although my main playground is Instagram these days, but I am also on Twitter and Facebook. And so find me, Rialina, and then that's where I put news of what I'm doing. I think I've got various things coming out. I just finished recording I just uh, finished recording a show called Brain Reaction with Richard Hammond, which will come out on Comedy Central in in the next month or two. So keep a lookout for that. Okay. And uh, sure. and generally I'm about live gigging all over the place. Of course. Fantastic. Thank you. Making for that coming money in. self-employed. Ladies and gentlemen, Ria Lida. This podcast was hosted by me, Jeff Innocent. It was produced and edited by Sam Piconi. Don't forget to like and subscribe and follow me on social media at Jeff Innocent Official on Instagram and Innocent Jeff on Twitter. See you next time for another episode of Smart Casual.